Uh, you, you can go ahead and open your Bible to 1 Peter 1. Actually, 1 Peter 2 would be even better. Have you ever wondered, and you probably have, perhaps, why we spend so much time looking at God's Word together week in and week out? Uh, we, give, we gather together for about an hour and a half each week, and we spend the majority of that time in, in Scripture, uh, whether it be a call to worship or a Scripture reading um, or the offering being given rooted in, rooted in God's Word, to prayers rooted in God's Word, to the preaching of God's Word, uh, to a benediction. I mean, God's Word is all over the place. Why, why do we do that? Well, we believe that when, when God's Word is proclaimed, when God's Gospel is proclaimed, that God is speaking. And so we want to give Him, give him our attention. And, and preaching, we don't gather to hear Devin's thoughts or Larry's thoughts. We gather to hear, hear what God has to say to us. Um, so for, just as I, as I get going, I just want to say for you, for you note-takers here, note-taking is a wonderful thing, helpful, it can be a helpful way to engage, helpful way to listen, but there's not going to be a test at the end of this sermon, nor any other sermon that we give. Uh, there's, it, it, what we're gathered to do is not to amass knowledge. And in our, in our Western context, taking notes, it can, it can kind of give us that impression that we're here to just kind of collect all the information so we're ready to go for the test, but there's no test. The, what we're called to do is, is to know God so we might glorify Him and obey Him. So what these, these times are about, they're, they're about worshiping God with our, with our minds and with our, with our um, eyes as we look to God's Word and with our ears as we hear God's Word. We are, we are here to be transformed by the Word of God. Not, not the Word of Devin, not the Word of Larry, but the Word of God. So I just stand up here, uh, not in my own strength or declare my own wisdom, which is very limited, but to declare the wisdom of God made known in His Word. Amen. That's why we spend this time each week, and uh, so I just wanted to let you know. I mean, just as a reminder. Now, I've said this before, and I'll say it again. I really like a good story. Um, I, I, like, I like stories, and I like stories not in the... Some people will say that, and they're talking about it just more in like the kind of the I want to be entertained way, and I'd like to be entertained. That's great. That's fine, but I like stories in the meaning they give to a specific moment in time. I like the backstory. I like the, the story that leads up to where we might find ourselves in any given moment. Now, one of my hobbies is, is following the lowly Baltimore Orioles, and they were terrible last year, and they're terrible this year, and they'll probably be really bad next year. But I still love the stories behind what's taking place. Uh, just one example, there's many examples I could choose from that like, keep me engaged and keep me interested, but just one example, there's a guy on the team named Hanser Alberto. And if you watch the Orioles play, this guy, would, you would not remember this guy at all. I mean, he's pretty unremarkable. He's like probably 5'8 and a buck 75, and just unremarkable guy when it comes to baseball. Uh, but he would play he, this afternoon. He'll probably play second base or third base, and he's, he'll probably get a hit or two, like a couple base hits. It's just kind of like no one's going to come home talking about Hanser Alberto. But one of the things that I love about stories is that they give significance to every time he steps on the field. So this guy, you wouldn't know just by watching this afternoon, in last year at the end of the year, he was playing for a different organization, the Texas Rangers. Two months after the year ended, they let him go. They said, you don't quite cut it. So they did what they, what's called waving him. They waved him. So another team picked him up, and that was the Yankees. So they picked him up. And then two months after that, 
the Yankees are like, nah, we don't want you. They waived him. Then a month after that, the Orioles, I mean, the Orioles picked him up from the Yankees. Then the Orioles waived him. They were like, we don't want you either. And then the Giants picked him up. And then the Giants waived him. So this guy played for four different organizations in the span of four months. He didn't play for them. He was, he was in their organization. Four different teams over four months. Four teams saying, not quite good enough. And four teams saying, yeah, we kind of want you, but not that much. And then this guy comes and he plays. And this year he's, he's in the running for a batting title and he's one of, the, one of the best hitters in baseball this year. Crazy stuff, but that's what happens. So like knowing that story then when I watch him play, it's, it's a lot of fun, it's pretty exciting. It's good stuff to see what's going on. Now when we read scripture, we wanna read the Bible with, with the backstory in mind. We wanna know anytime we open up God's word, there, there's a lot that has preceded whatever we're looking at in that moment. There's this preceding storyline that runs really from, from before there was time to, to the moment that we encounter when the writer is addressing his audience. Understanding something of that story, it, it brings vibrant color and profound weight to every word and phrase that the author then uses. So with all that in mind, I'm gonna launch into like the longest introduction ever before we get to our text, just as a heads up. And again, there's no test, so you don't need to write any of this down. But I do, what I do want you to do is behold the glory of God uh, through his word in the story that he is writing. So if you don't mind, we're gonna hop into my time machine. We're gonna travel back in time, back to the beginning. And when we travel back in time and go back to the beginning, we, we find ourselves in a place. We find ourselves in a place and it's called the Garden of Eden. And this garden is the most spe spectacular place in all the world. And I mean, there's, there's no, uh, no vestiges of the fall there because the fall hasn't happened. There is perfect peace and beauty and harmony there. And, and like, as beautiful as you can imagine things, that's, that's the garden. No, no death, nothing stained by death, nothing stained by sin. Untainted by any corruption. But what was the very best part of the Garden of Eden? What was the most spectacular thing about it? I mean, could it have been the delicious fruit that hung from the trees? Or was it the fact that just kind of all these animals are roaming around and, and not fighting one another, not eating one another? Or was it God, the pinnacle of God's creation, which was when he made man and woman and declared them very good? Is that the best part of the garden? None of those things are the best part of the garden. The best part of the Garden of Eden wasn't that there was no death, wasn't the delicious fruit, it was that God was there. God was there. The most spectacular thing about the garden, that it was the place that God made his home with humanity. And when he made his home with humanity in the garden, he gave Adam a job. And he told Adam to, to work and to keep this garden. But then something happened. So we're, we're traveling forward a little bit in our time machine, just really from Genesis 2 to Genesis 3. And we see Adam and Eve partake of the forbidden fruit. The, the one thing God told them not to do, they, they go and do. They, they decide that there's something better than just knowing God. So they ate of this fruit, and sin corrupted Adam and Eve. And because sin corrupted them, they could no longer live in this garden. And so they were, they were sent out away from the presence of God. Because God is holy, nothing bad, nothing evil, nothing sinful could exist where he dwelt. So God sends them out. And to ensure that they could never re-enter that garden, as he sent them out, he placed cherubim, angels, to, to guard that garden with a flaming sword to keep them from ever entering that garden again. Because in that garden is the place where God dwelled. It was a holy place, and they were not holy. 
So in one sense, he put these angels there as a giant, like, do not enter sign. You cannot enter the place where I live. Now that's depressing and tragic. But we know that's not the end of the story. God did not want humanity to forget the goodness that comes from dwelling with him. So as we travel forward in time, he wanted his people to know that he had not forgotten them or abandoned them. And there were, there were moments, as, we, as we're, we're, we're going really fast in the time machine now, and just kind of looking down, and there are moments where, where the people think God has forgotten them. And so maybe we'll slow down a little bit, and we see in Egypt, and they're enslaved, and they've been enslaved for a long, long time. They're saying, God, God's forgotten us, and they've forgotten God. We keep going forward. God had not forgotten them. As we see God deliver them out of the hand of their Egyptian captivity, out of their slavery. God delivers them and sets them free, and now, now they're wandering the wilderness. But God still wants them to know that he has not forgotten them. And so even as they're wandering throughout the wilderness for 40 years, there's this pillar of cloud by day and this pillar of fire by night showing God that, that you know, even though you can't dwell with me, I'm still, still present with you. But the most significant thing he had his people do, as we're slowing down a little bit more, is that he had them build this tabernacle. This tabernacle. This tabernacle is just this, this big tent. And it was the place that God had his people build it for, for God to live with them. That was the tabernacle. He wanted them to know that he had not abandoned them. This was God's house. It was the place where God's people were able to see that God was truly present with them. So when they set up their camp as they're wandering through the wilderness over these 40 years, every time they set up this camp, right smack dab in the middle of that camp was the tabernacle, the place where God dwelled. The tabernacle it was the place of worship. So it was this meeting place between heaven, where God truly dwells, and, and earth and its fallen humanity. This is where those two cosmic places meet in the tabernacle. This place of worship, the place where God's glory was put on display and the people could come to show him reverence and honor. It was the most important place in all of the world for the people of Israel. The most important place. And so God's people, they built this tabernacle. And at the very center of this place, in the center of, of their encampment, was this room called the Holy of Holies. And inside the Holy of Holies was, was the only place in all of the encampment that was, it was just unblemished. It was perfectly clean. So we read descriptions of this through, through Exodus where it's layered in gold and the furniture is constructed and the fabrics are woven only of the very finest materials. It was a spectacular place. And when we read about this, this tabernacle, this portion of the tabernacle, we should be reminded of another spectacular place that was, was perfect and unblemished, the garden. But the most spectacular thing about this place was that it was the place where God dwelled amidst his people in the holy of holies. But sin was still a reality for God's people, right? They were still unclean. So God, as a holy God, had to keep some separation between himself and his people. And so in order to keep this separation, he had them put, you'll probably know, you'll remember, he had them put a curtain around this, this place, this holy of holies, this most holy place. And when God gives them instructions on making the tabernacle, he tells them that these curtains aren't just any curtains. In Exodus 26, it says that they're to make curtains that go around the tabernacle with cherubim, skillfully worked into them. Cherubim. 
Just like in the Garden of Eden where there was cherubim keeping, keeping the people, Adam and Eve, from coming back into the garden. There are cherubim keeping these people from coming into the presence of God. They're reminded. These, these curtains with cherubim, they, they remind us that humanity in their sin, in their uncleanness, they cannot dwell with God. But this time, rather than having no hope of entering the garden, God makes, in His grace, He makes provision for access to Him. So it's not complete separation between God and His people, but it's, it's close to that. God tells them that there's, there's one man, known as the high priest, who can enter into this place. And he can only do it once a year. One man, once a year, representing all of the people. God gave the people of Israel really strict and explicit instructions for the high priest's access. And this is what we read about in Leviticus 16. The only way the high priest could approach the presence of God on behalf of the people was if he came on God's terms. He came with the right sacrifices, wearing the right clothes, and it was a huge ordeal. There was this complex ritual of, of washing and confession and sacrifice. And at every point, the people were reminded that God can only be approached in the way that he prescribes. And, and that's in, in, in cleanness, without sin, without, without being tainted by the fall. Because he is holy, nothing blemished, nothing unclean, nothing impure could ever be in his presence. So the high priest, I mean, would spend an extended period of time just preparing to just walk into this room. And again, this took place once a year in the seventh month on the tenth day, and it was called the Day of Atonement. For on this day, this is Leviticus sixteen thirteen. on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. That's what takes place on the Day of Atonement. All right, now we're going to hop back in our time machine. We're going to go a little bit faster. We go forward in the future, and as you go, we can see like the time of the judges, and we see Samson and all kinds of crazy stuff going on in judges, and then we see a king rise up. We see Saul, and then we see David. David come, and, and we see God give instructions to David to, to build him a house, build a house for the Lord. So no longer is it a, a tabernacle where God dwells with his people. It's now going to be in a temple, and David dies, and now Solomon completes that temple. And we see the glory of that temple as it's made, the glory of that temple is made known throughout the world, the riches that are there. But there's, there's still tainted by the fall. And we see the kingdom divide, north and south. And now there's disagreement over where the true place of worship is. Where is the, where's the true place? The fall of the, of the northern kingdom. And we, then we see the fall of the southern kingdom in the sixth century. And now we see the people of Israel, over time, returning from captivity in Babylon. And they're coming to rebuild the temple, to reclaim the place of God for the people of God. They want to behold God's glory again in their midst. And we read about this in Ezra and Nehemiah. But we also read that it's a hard job. The glory of this temple, it doesn't seem so glorious as all the stories they've heard of it. And during this time, there's a prophet, Haggai, and he writes this. He says, be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So in the midst of, of the, the turmoil of rebuilding the temple and, and the opposition takes place, and just, it just seems hopeless at different points. God is saying through his prophet that, that the future temple that I'm going to build is far greater than the former glory of the old temple. Now the people that heard this prophecy thought that Haggai was talking about 
this physical space in Jerusalem. But God had something much more spectacular in store. Now with all of this in the background, we're going to get back in the time machine. We're going to travel forward 500 years about, and we see a baby being born in Bethlehem. And we see his parents, we see him bring this baby into the temple in Jerusalem. And there's this man there at the temple named Simeon, and he'd been waiting and waiting for the glory of God to come. And when he saw this baby, Luke records that he, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. And he tells the parents, the baby's parents, that this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many. And as you know, this baby was Jesus. And he came as a man and he dwelled with his people. And John tells us that he tabernacled among the people. Being God himself, he was the presence of God in the midst of humanity. He was the true, true temple, the, the meeting place between God and man. And this is how he talked about himself during his ministry. In Matthew 12, he declares to the Jews that something greater than the temple is here. He tells them that something greater than the temple is here, and he's talking about himself. In John 2, he tells the Jews that, that they're, you're going to destroy this temple, and in three days, I'm going to raise it. And they're like, it took us 46 years to build this. What are you talking about? You're crazy. Raise it up in three days. And John writes, he was speaking of the temple of his body. And if you flip forward a couple more chapters, and, and we see Jesus at a well, and there's a Samaritan woman that comes up. And she, she asks, I mean, as uh, she's living with a man who's not her husband, and she's been with five, married to five other men, then she shifts the, shifts the uh, topic of their conversation to worship, of course. And she asks him, uh, well, so where is the true place of worship? And she's a Samaritan. So there's this, been this long conflict between the Samaritans and the Jews about where the true place of worship is. And Jesus tells her, woman, woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Here she is. She's asking a question about geography. Where is the true place of worship? And Jesus responds that the, the presence of God is not known in a place. The worship of God doesn't take place in this physical space, physical location, but it takes place in spirit and truth. Jesus is saying the place of worship is not in Jerusalem, not on Mount Gerizim, but in me. I am the temple. Jesus, as the temple, he was destroyed. His body was broken. As he was bruised and bloodied, as he hung on the cross, he died. But he didn't stay dead. Because on Sunday morning, he rose again victorious over the grave. He rebuilt that temple. And he was victorious over the power of sin and evil. He was vindicated in his righteous work. The temple had been rebuilt. And then Jesus ascended on high. And rather than this ascension being a low point in human history, as the glory of God just once again departs, departs. Jesus says, for you that I leave. For my spirit will be with you. If my body didn't leave, my spirit could not be with you. But since I am going, the help of the Holy Spirit is going to be with you and in you. 
And at Pentecost, as we go forward a little bit more, that's just what happens. If we get back in our time machine, we can check it out. In Acts 2, those who put their faith in Jesus are all together in one place. In Acts 2, verse 2 says, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. And then just after that, Peter, the same Peter who's going to write the letter that we're about to read, preaches the first sermon of the new church. And he testifies that Jesus Christ is both Lord and Savior, God and Messiah, risen and reigning. And not long after that, Peter is brought before the religious leaders in Jerusalem, and he tells the leaders who crucified Jesus, he says this in Acts 4, 10 through 12, he says, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, who God raised from the dead, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. The builders has, by you the builders, and has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now over the next three decades, the gospel of Jesus Christ spread throughout the Gentile world as God's glory and God's grace were proclaimed and the church was built. But not everybody was happy about this. Actually, most weren't happy about this. Christians daily faced persecution and suffering because they seemed to be marching to the orders of a different king. They lived as if they were citizens of a different kingdom. And this Peter, the one who was with Jesus from the beginning of his ministry, he writes a letter to some of these Christians who are suffering because of their faith. So he writes to the elect exiles of dispersion, which is in, in what's in the Bible times called Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And he writes to remind them that they are to, in, to encourage them in their faith and to exhort them to stand firm. And that is the letter we're looking at today. So now that we've, we've completed our journey in our time machine, we've gotten to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to look at the book together and see what God has to say to us. Would you look with me? 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men but in the sight of God, chosen and precious... You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. Let me pray. Father, thank You for speaking to us through Your Word. And thank You that as we look to Your Word, You are You are speaking in our midst. And so give us ears to hear and give us eyes to see your glory as we look to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to look at these three verses under three different headings. The first heading is going to be the church's identity. The church's identity. Peter highlights three things about the identity of these Gentile believers. And we see the first one in, in verse 5. Since we're looking at just these three verses, we're going to jump around a little bit, but it's a small, small portion that we're jumping, we're jumping around. So you'll be, you'll be fine. We see in verse 5 the first, first thing that Peter tells these Christians about their identity. He says, you yourselves like living stones. They are living stones. He says, because of the faith that you have placed in Jesus Christ, you are living stones like he is a living stone, which we saw in verse 4. Now, why is Jesus a living stone? I, have you ever seen a living stone? I've not seen a living stone. Stones don't 
tend to be alive. But Jesus is a living stone. And he's a living stone because he's not dead. I was with the, with the kids last night, and one of the kids gave me that answer. I, that's it. The, uh, I was asking, well, yeah, why is Jesus a living stone? And somebody said, he's not dead. Amen. Amen. <laughs> he rose from the dead. He's not a dead stone. He is risen and reigning. The Jerusalem temple was only made from dead stones because that's all they had. But Jesus is so much better. Jesus is far superior because he, he's not a dead stone. He's a living stone. And when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we become united to him. And this means that we are crucified with him. We die with him. And it's no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. His resurrection life becomes our life. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Galatians 2.20. So even in the midst of a world who rejects Christ, he was rejected by men, we have life in Jesus. We have resurrection life in him. This is who the church is, living stones. But we're not just stones lying out in a field somewhere or, or just thrown into a heap. We are being built up. This is the second thing Peter tells us about the church, about our identity. We are built up into a spiritual house. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. When the Spirit was given to the church, the church, as a collective people, became the dwelling place of God. So all that we were talking about with, with the Garden of Eden being the place where God dwells, and then the tabernacle, and then the temple, and then Jesus. Now when the Spirit of God comes, dwells with and in His people. From garden to tabernacle to temple to Jesus, the fulfillment of God's presence on this earth is in the church. We, as the church, are the new temple in Christ. That's what Peter's saying. Remember how Jesus talked about being the temple. His body was the temple. Well, do you know what the church is? Do you know how the New Testament talks about the church? It talks about the body of Christ. When Paul is addressing sin in the Corinthian church, he's, he's calling the church to remember who they are. Remember who you are as you pursue holiness. So he writes in 1 Corinthians 3.16, he says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? The church is that spiritual house, the place where God dwells. And it's made up of people, not bricks, not stones, but people. Now think about this for a people who are probably only tempted to feel inferior. This is the audience that Peter was writing to. They were persecuted, they were opposed. They're in this kind of like far off land in Asia Minor, far away from the center, the religious hub of Jerusalem. They probably didn't feel that great about themselves. Probably always feeling a little less than the other Christians who had their start in Jerusalem. Or they were living at a time where, where people actually like had walked with Jesus and had learned from Jesus. They didn't have any of that. They, they were at a time when, when people would trace their bloodlines to David, to Abraham, and even to the Messiah themselves. They didn't have any of that. They were Gentiles. Now Peter's been telling them that as those who place their faith in Christ, they become part of a new family. They have belonging in Jesus. And the very greatest things about the Jewish religion under the Old Covenant are now true of them. That's what Peter's saying. He says they're God's chosen people, elect. He calls them elect exiles, God's chosen people. They've become a spiritual house, God's holy temple. There's this uh, prominent Christian architect and professor at Yale. It, he describes the place of 
architecture and building in the world after the fall, after Eden. And he describes it like ever since Adam and Eve were taken out of the garden because of their sin, humanity has been at work trying to build, build a home for themselves, all, build significance, build belonging, always building. So we see this clearly in, in Babel, and it goes on throughout human history. And this guy's name is Kyle Dugdale, and he observes that all this building seems to point to a desire to, to find a home, a feeling that we just can't seem to satisfy in this life. So we keep building and building and building. And then uh, when that doesn't work, we knock those buildings down and we build again and build and build and build. Dugdale writes this. He says, architecture has struggled to mitigate the effects of the fall. Architect, architecture can't save us, is what he's saying. But the city is a poor substitute for the Garden of Eden. Architecture performs at best the role of a fig leaf covering humanity's exposure. In the end, it is perhaps not so much a, cur a cure as it is an expression of humanity's homesickness. It's not our, all our buildings, not so much a cure as it is an expression of our homesickness. Now for these sojourning exiles in Asia Minor, what a glorious reality. Peter's reminder is that they are being built up as a spiritual house. They don't have to be in Jerusalem to be at the center of all that God is doing in the world. They are the spiritual house. They are the temple, the dwelling place of God. One commentator, he simply says, they were God's special building project. They were it, those people. And the same is true of us today. I think this is something that it's easy for us to lose sight of, to fail to delight in. I know I can. Here we are gathered in a middle school cafeteria. Perhaps some of you, though you wouldn't admit it, like this feels a little less than, than church. Perhaps if we were in one of those cathedrals in Europe, like then, then that would feel like church. Or maybe if we were meeting in one of those simple but elegant chapels, like in New England, then, then it would feel like church. Or maybe if we were just meeting in, in a space that we owned, a place that was ours, that we, that we built, we had a presence in the community, then, then it would really feel like church. Sure, this is church too, but like, couldn't it be better? Well, Peter is telling us that our identity as the church is that spiritual house. The church isn't made up of brick upon brick. The church is living stones built together into a spiritual house. It's people built into God's house. No building can bring us any closer to God than we already are as his spiritual house. We are God's people. No building can give any more legitimacy to who we are because God is present in our midst. So when we gather together each week, we come to the place where God dwells as he dwells in and with his people. That's incredible. As we gather together each week in this Halliwell's Middle School cafeteria, we come to a place where God dwells in and with his people. And God wants to meet with us as we gather together. The church has become God's place, not the temple in Jerusalem or the building down the street. It is the church. What a gift that is. Peter then tells us one more thing about our identity. He tells us next that we are a holy priesthood. We are a holy priesthood. And I'm sure Larry's going to address this more next week, but I just want to briefly make a couple observations. In the Old Testament, we read a lot about priests. There are those, we talked about them a little bit ago. There are those who are, who are set apart for the service of God. They're consecrated to him. They didn't receive an inheritance with the land because their inheritance was God. Their task was to 
work and keep the temple. That, that same phrase that's used of Adam for Adam in Genesis chapter 2, work and keep in the garden, this is what was, the priests were called to do, work and keep the temple. These priests were the most prominent figures in the Jewish religion. And here, Peter is telling the Christians, often Asia Minor, not only are you God's temple, you are God's priests. You are those set apart for service to God, those whom God wants to do his work through. This is wild. In just a few words, Peter has taken two of the most glorious realities of the Jewish religion, temple and priest, and applied them to these exiles, these Gentile exiles in Asia Minor, to the church, to us today. One other thing I want to point out about being a holy priesthood, remember how only one person could access God's presence under the Old Covenant? Just that high priest on that Day of Atonement? Well, now, in Jesus Christ... We all have access to God by faith. We can come to him because of who we are in Jesus. Now this leads to our second main heading. We've looked at first our identity, the church's identity. Now we're going to look at our function, the church's function. This is who we are as a church. We're living stones, spiritual house, holy priesthood. But now what do we do? The church's function. There are two things I want us to look at here. Two things we do because of who we are. Now the first we see right at the beginning of verse 4. It says this, as you come to him. That would be an easy phrase to pass over. But because of who we are, we are those who are coming to him. This is part of the very nature of who we are. If you are in Christ, then you are one who is coming to him. Always coming to him. In verse 3, Peter's just described that Christians are the ones who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. You remember Larry preaching on that last week. We're those who, who taste. We know it to be true. Because we, we have seen his faithfulness time and time again. In Jesus Christ, we have received amazing grace. We sang about it earlier. What gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer? I, I can't remember the next line, but I, I won't even try now. It's gone. Yeah, there is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness, and freedom, and something else. It's all good. We have been given that into which angels, this is what Peter talks about in, in the first chapter, we've been given that which angels long to look. So taste and see the goodness of the Lord, brothers and sisters. Taste and see the goodness of Jesus. Coming to him, tasting of his goodness, is not only a call to the one who is far off from God. It's a call to all those who are walking with God. It's not just for the rebel, but for the churchgoer. It's not just for the wayward, but the preacher. Taste and see. Come to Him day after day, moment by moment. We come to Jesus to receive His grace, the goodness of His promises. John Calvin wrote in the 16th century, he said, We enjoy Christ only as we embrace Christ clad in His own promises. We enjoy Christ only as we embrace Christ clad in His own promises. As a Christian coming to Christ, embracing Him, pressing into His promises is our first responsibility. And it's our second responsibility. And it's our third responsibility and every responsibility after that. Every day, every week, every year, this is what those who place their faith in Christ do. They come to him. So as you come to him, come to him. Delight in him. Taste of his goodness. So that's the first function of the church. We come to him. We're always coming to Jesus. 
always coming, every day. And, and so even as we gather, we, we begin with a call to worship. I've said this before. It's, it's really a misnomer. It's not really a call to worship because we have been worshiping all the way through. We are, we are always, every day, day in and day out, coming to him, worshiping him, giving our lives to him. This is just a reorientation to what we're called to do every, every, every other moment. So we're called, it's really, it's not a call to worship as much as it is a call to continue our worship. The second function of the church, the second thing we do because of who we are, is we offer spiritual sacrifices. You see this in verse, in verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices. Our call, because of who we are, is to offer spiritual sacrifices to God. No longer do we present the blood of bulls and goats to God. We present ourselves by the Spirit. Now these spiritual sacrifices, they encompass everything that we do for God. Peter doesn't go into detail right here, but all throughout the New Testament we see the sacrifices that we are to make. So we offer our bodies to God to serve Him. We're living sacrifices is what Paul tells us in Romans 12.1. In Philippians 4, Paul describes the gift that he's been given in his ministry as a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So we give for the advancement of the gospel throughout our community and throughout the world. This is spiritual sacrifice. In Hebrews 13, 15, we sing praise to God. The fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name is a sacrifice of praise to God. In the next verse, the writer of Hebrews tells us that the sacrifices that are pleasing to God are, are doing good and sharing what we have. Peter's point is this. Because of who you are as God's temple and as God's priests, you've been set apart for his service. Our lives are for his glory alone. Now we move to the, the why and how of all this. Why do we offer these spiritual sacrifices? How is it that we can even be and become the temple of the Holy Spirit, the holy priesthood of God? How does that happen? Because of who God is as the holy sovereign creator, do we just owe it to God to do these things? Do we do it so that he might see us and might like us, might help us with our problems? If we do enough, can we ever be accepted by God? Now, in answer to all these questions, I want to look at the third, the third aspect of our passage, the third heading. Number three, the church's foundation. We've looked at our identity, our function, now our foundation. The foundation of the church. Both the answers to the how questions and the why questions is simple, yet mind-blowingly profound. And it's, the, it's that standard Sunday school answer. Jesus. Jesus Christ. Jesus is the church's foundation. He is the why behind our spiritual sacrifices. He is the how of all we are and all we do. While we are like living stones, Peter tells us that Jesus is the living stone. But more than that, he is the, the cornerstone. Here, Peter quotes from Isaiah 28, 16. He says this, verse 6, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Jesus is the one stone, the cornerstone, that sets the whole structure right. He is the stone on which the whole structure rests. He is the foundation of the church. When we think about Grace Church, we're not built on our history. We're not built on our leaders. We're not built on our activity in the community. We're not built on our success in ministry. We're not even built on our people. We are built on the Son of God. Jesus Christ himself. He is our foundation. So we come to him. It's to him we look. It's to him we come. It's him we proclaim. 
But this foundation, this living stone, Peter tells us something else about it. In verse 4, we mentioned it briefly earlier. He's rejected by men. He's the living stone rejected by men. The world that we live in, the world that we navigate, is set in opposition to the foundation of the church. It is against Jesus Christ. And as much as we don't like to contemplate that, that is reality, and that's what the Bible teaches. Opposition, persecution, discouragement, suffering will come. May already be here. But this is no surprise to God, and it should be no surprise to us. This rejection by men, this rejection by the world, is not defining for us. Because what is defining is the sight of God. And in God's sight, the living stone that's rejected by men, the cornerstone upon which we are built, is chosen and elect. And it is inestimably precious, worthy of all honor and glory. In the sight of God, this living stone is chosen and precious. But that's not all. Peter tells us about the implications of our foundation. Because Jesus Christ is our foundation, we are then acceptable to God. So we see this in verse 5, that we are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. All of our sacrifices are accepted because we offer them in Jesus Christ. It's the only basis. The only basis we come to Him. We don't offer them in our name. We don't offer them in our own glory or in our own performance. We offer them in Jesus' name. He is the basis of our worship, the only acceptance of our worship. As sinful humans, we never die to ourselves like we should. We never pray as much or as sincerely as we ought. We are never passionate for holiness like we should be or, or doing good like we ought. All our best deeds are stained with sin. But in Christ Jesus, all our works find favor before God. They're acceptable before God. All that we do is accepted by God, not because our works are so great or we are so great, but because we are in Christ. And so as Peter quotes from Isaiah, he says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. It's the end of verse 6. With Jesus as our cornerstone, we can stand in the midst of any storm. We can live lives free of condemnation. We can look to the future, the unknown future, without dread. For those who hope in Christ Jesus for their, salva for their salvation, they will never be put to shame. Because when we are united to Christ, when we are one with Him, when I am His and He is mine, then what is true of Him is true of me. What is true of Him is true of you. So Peter opens his letter declaring in verses 3-5, through five, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, that is undefiled, that is unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Now remember our time machine and the journey we took through the Bible. Remember how Jesus came and tabernacled among humanity, how he set up this tent, his tent with us. Well, as incredible as this is, Jesus didn't come to be present with his people. He came as the great high priest to give us access to God. 
He is the high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. It's Hebrews 7.26. And how does he give his people access to God? God's people have access to God because he came not just as a priest offering sacrifices. He came as the priest offering himself the all-sufficient sacrifice. While the high priest of Israel had to offer sacrifices year after year because they couldn't truly make God's people clean, Jesus came and made one sacrifice, a single sacrifice for sins, and then he sat down at the right hand of God. His work is complete and perfect. So the writer of Hebrews, he calls out to us, Hebrews 10, 19 through 23, Therefore, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way, before I actually read the rest of this verse, I talked about that curtain. Do you know what happened when Jesus died? That curtain that keeps us out of the holy holies? That curtain with the cherubim telling us, do not enter. You do not belong here. That curtain from top to bottom was torn in two, giving us access to God. So since we have access to God, confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened to us for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So brothers and sisters, week after week as we gather together, we, we come to him. We come in him. That's the only basis that we have to come. Our, our lives are wrapped up with him. And as we are being built up into this spiritual house as, as the temple of God, we gather together to anticipate a future day. Because what we only know in part right now, what we only experience in part right now is the spirit of God dwells in us and with us. Well, one day be known in full when our faith shall become sight. One of the, one of the beautiful things about, we've, we've taken this journey on our time machine, one of the beautiful things about the end of all things is recorded for us in Revelation 21, 22. And we see that there's this new heaven and new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth, they'd passed away and the sea was no more. So everything, everything's new. And then verse 2 of 21 and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So all, all things, now it's, it's the city, this Jerusalem, the place where God dwells. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. So what was so great about the garden was that God was there. God dwelled with his people there. What's so great about the church is that God is there. What's so great about heaven is that God is there. Listen to this, what it says at the end of Revelation 21, verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Nothing unclean will ever enter that place, 
But if you are in Jesus Christ, if you are united to him, it's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. So what is true of him in his perfection, in his obedience, is true of you when God sees you in Christ. So brothers and sisters, look to Jesus this morning. Taste and see that he is good. And because you have tasted that the Lord is good, we are to come again and again to him. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift that we have in Jesus Christ. Thank you that you indeed have won our victory through your death. Thank you that we can have life in you. And to you we look, it's in you we hope. In Jesus' name we pray.